Greetings. Hello, everyone. Um, I think you can distinguish that I'm Jonathan and that's Joyce, right? Um, Joyce is sort of, we, re, we are going to read a little bit, but not right away. And um, I, I would just, uh, I, I probably would, before you say anything, if it's okay, I'd like to say that uh, I would not, might not be sitting here, and I, I would probably not have written this book had uh, Joyce Carol Oates not encouraged me from day one um, to say, and she said, and, and you'll tell me if I get the quote right, but she said, men don't write these kind of books. You really just have to write this book. And um, so I thank Joyce for that. And uh, so, Joyce, you're, you're gonna take it away, kind of? Yes, well, it's a wonderful occasion, and it's very, it's heartrending. I, I, I had read this actually in, in what would have been called manuscript, but it was actually online. Late 2016, was it? Could have been that long ago? I don't remember, I don't know. I don't That's know. a stra strange thing about, about loss and grief, that so much time goes by and it's so raw and immediate. It seems almost as though no time has gone by. But I have read the book and then I read, I think, maybe revisions and it has definitely evolved. So I just want to start with some general questions. First of all, I think the cover is very interesting and there are photographs at the back. And, but it's distinctive in that there are drawings because Jonathan is, is an accomplished artist and they're really wonderful drawings that makes the, the memoir, uh, I think, really unique. But you didn't, you didn't want a drawing on the cover um, you know, honestly, I think by the time uh, it was being turned into a book, uh, I sort of gave that over, you know, to the publisher. And um, it was their idea to make it look like an actual notebook, which I liked. Um, I think maybe a drawing on the cover might have been, I, I don't know if it would have been distracting or too personal. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know that it came up to be honest with you, you know, I don't, I don't think so. So I, I'm happy with the fact that it looks like I scribbled it myself at home, you know, so. And, and when, when did you get the idea to do drawings? Was that immediately or later? Uh, well, you know this about me is that I, I went to art school. I was trained as an artist and I had, um, you know, I, I, the first, I was gonna say the first half of my life, but that would be probably when I was a little boy. But the first half of my adult life, I was a, a painter. And um, so I went to art school, and which I, I, which I recommend. You know, I don't think I, you don't learn anything other than making art, which is, you know, you come out uneducated, but it's quite wonderful. Um, I, you know, I don't even think that's funny, you see. But, but uh, uh, I, art school was great, and, and I love to draw. Draws, to me, drawing is one of the most relaxing things, and I've taught drawing many for many years at many universities and places, and I, f I feel as if anybody can learn to draw, and it is mm -hmm. literally learning to you know, see and coordinate your hand and eye. And so for what happened, this is a long-winded answer, I'm sorry, Joyce. Um, what happened to me is that after, after my wife died, I, I could not have the photographs in my house. I just, the, the, if I came upon a photograph 
of my wife in the house, I just, it shattered me. I just couldn't have it. So I, I put them all away. I just took them away. And, but somehow I needed something else. And then one night, literally in the middle of the night, since I couldn't sleep, I started making drawings. And what I would do is I would, you know, work off of other things that like little Xerox images that I had or things. And I would make drawings of my wife and me and my, our daughter and, um, and we, I did about 80 of them over the two years. They were very, they were a way, as I say, to stay connected. But when you're, you know how when you're doing something, work, how it also, you're concentrated on your work so you can survive. So it was a very, it's like I say to people, you know, if you don't know how to cook, learn to cook or do something because it's, it was great for me, that's all, you know, to do mm -hmm. the drawing. So 12 of them, I think, end up in the book. 12, yeah. well, they're wonderful. They're very, very touching. And, and the emotional tone is so different from a photograph. I think so too. Um, I, lo I love photographs, but I think a drawing is alive in, the, in a different way because it's activated by the artist's hand. And so for me, um, it's, maybe that's uh, because you know, I love drawings so much, but I do think that drawings have a more active life to them than, you know, you're erasing and you're remaking marks, so it's, um, it's just a more immediate thing to me. Well, it's very, there's a very loving quality to, to the drawings. They're very intimate, and so there's communicated to, to the reader this sense of an emotional attachment that's, that's very powerful. But I think probably like, like m most visual artists, you probably, when you're drawing, are not thinking. Whereas writers are working with language and there's sort of a linear, kind of always a little bit of an argument. A, a paragraph is sort of an argument. You're, you're solving a problem or pacing, whatever. So I would guess that when you're doing these drawings, they're really perfect meditations that you're not thinking. Well, it's a combination. You know, what you just said, you know, what, the way you described writing is exactly how I would do it. So, and I've heard, I'm stealing Joyce's lines because I've heard her say this. You write something and then you write something else and then you, you write and it turns into something else. But your mind is filled with language. And when your mind is filled with language, it, it's all, to me, it's all encompassing. I think when you're drawing, it's hand-eye coordination, but it, you know, it's why you can listen to music it's, it's um, you know, I could talk on the phone the whole time I'm drawing. Really? Yeah, I have. That's amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny, there's a friend of mine, very well-known painter, uh, Catherine Murphy, and, and she was telling me she was doing a portrait of this man, and she was talking the whole time, and he said, is this something like, is this portrait gonna turn out okay? Because you're talking the whole time. Yeah, that is, yeah. You know, and, but there is this part, what I mean is, is this part of your brain that's free so that while I was doing the drawings, like if I was doing a drawing of Joy or of my daughter Dory, um, I was very much thinking about that moment and them and how to make it, but then there's this little part of your brain that's, I don't know, it's just doing something over there, you know? So. I th I'm sure there, I know there are a couple of visual artists here who know what I mean. You know, I'm, when I, what I do say is I miss music a lot when I'm writing because I can't listen to music. Mm -hmm. Do you? Mm -hmm. No, I don't listen to music. I, tr I try not to have any more distractions than I, than I have. 
with my cat. My I was cat, about to just my, <laughs> my cat is usually right next to the laptop with her tail goes on it. So I really don't need any more distractions. I sort of had, well, I've seen, I've seen your cat, Sherry, literally on your computer. So I've kind of, how much of the books does she actually write? <laughs> <laughs> she does the Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That gets me into trouble. It's sort of <laughs> nocturnal. No, my theory is that most of t Twitter past midnight is done by cats all across the country. <laughs> and that's why it's so, it's so weird and kind of surreal. But uh, to get back to this initial point that I think there are not very many men who write memoirs about this kind of loss. It seems to be really dominated by women it doesn't have to be, I'm, that's really not inevitable, but I can't think of very many men who have written anything like this. That's one of the reasons I encouraged Jonathan to write it. I thought it would be, it would be therapeutic for you and, and wonderful for you to, to transform your feelings into this. But I thought also it would have almost an altruistic value to, to the world. A widower's, the widower's Handbook is what I had thought of a title. I was trying to write something called The Widow's Handbook. I was never able to write that. The, the title didn't work, though I have one chapter called that. And I think you may have started off with that, but it didn't work with you either. So, it right. turns, so anybody can just have that, you know. <laughs> because the one thing about um, this kind of loss, and I know it sounds very stereotypical and banal, is that you're totally surprised. And when I reread, I had to read my punishment. <laughs> I was rereading my own memoir, and every, I remember every stage of what happened was such a genuine surprise. Like I turn a page, and mine is like a journal. It's all in historical present. So I didn't know what was going to happen when I was putting these entries. I didn't know what the next day would be. And there's this continual air of surprise. And m maybe that's part of maybe it's a different sort of consciousness. You have taken maybe five years. How, do you want to um, talk a little bit about the evolution? Sure. Uh, well, what I did, I mean, it, I, I was using Joyce's um, title, The Widower's Handbook, for a while. It just didn't I, work. But yeah. I decided I, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want the book um, first of all, it's not a handbook. It's not a how-to book no. at all. So, um, and I was keeping notebooks. Um, I had, I, I had five, you know, old composition notebooks that I filled, and I would write in them at night, and, and I would write, you know, just like my friend, the writer S.J. Roseanne, is sitting here, and I would go to dinner with S.J. for example, and I would come back. And I would write in my notebook, you know, dinner with SJ, we talked about this and this and this and this, because there was a part of me that was so disconnected from everything that I just had to put it in, in, my, in these notebooks. But what happened, I didn't plan to write a book. And then about two years uh, after my wife's death, I went to Yaddo and I was going to be working, I was in the middle of a historical crime novel, and I couldn't work on it. And I had my notebooks, and so I started transcribing my notebooks. Is that, when, is that when Lily went with you? Yes, I did. I got special dis, 
Yeah, my, my cat came as my care cat. <laughs> and she has two chapters in the book. Uh, Yaro's gonna kill me, you know, because no pets are allowed, but I did get special permission. It was a, gr a grief cat. You're she was my grief, well, A grief you know, cat, you were allowed a grief cat. Um, yeah. I just have to say that, uh, so, because Joyce and I are both cat people, and uh, so Lily, was, and then I'll get back to the process, but you know, you have Sherry and you, I mean, I, I feel like Sherry, I know everything about Sherry, but, um, and Joyce tried to get to know Lily, but Lily was a very, it didn't work. It's hard to get to know someone who won't, co won't come out from under the bed. No. So Lily was, <laughs> Lily was my wife's cat and she was very much Joy, my wife's cat. She actually disliked me very much, <laughs> and, um, and it was horrible because after Joy died, I, I live in an old loft, as you know, in the flower district, and the elevator opens into the building, and Lily would sit at the elevator door and howl every night, howl, and I would go out and I would beg her to stop, beg her to stop, and anyway, we went to Yaddo, and something happened. She just completely fell in love with me. And, you know, I mean, and this, I mean, you know, people, everyone here, anyone here who has a pet, they, you talk to your pets, like, right? I said to Lily, we got there, you know, she was scared to come out of her cage. I said, listen, you're at an artist colony, write some poems, you know, so. <laughs> but then two days later, she was sleeping with me and we were best friends. But. I don't know what I was saying about that before that. Well, I think that obviously the, that Lily is your emotional connection with Joy because uh, she was Joy's kitty. Mm -hmm. And so if she had not been in your life, it would have been real emptiness. And the same with my cat. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of the, the link to your lost life. Well, you write about how your cats reacted, how well, your my, cat reacted very uh, badly. <laughs> I said, I can't believe we're talking about these things. <laughs> I, I, I probably brought it up myself. No, my, my two cats were very angry with me, and I, I maybe children, I like this too. They definitely blamed me for the disruption in the household, and they, they wouldn't really even let me pet them. So I think, I think the best thing I should have done was going out and get a dog. <laughs> <laughs> because I would spend, I'd be in the middle of the night begging these cats to come and they, they just wouldn't even listen, or they'd prefer to go outside in the cold. Eventually, one of them died, I think out of just spite, and <laughs> to make me feel guilty, and then the other one gradually, slowly came back in that, that sherry. But just to talk a little more about the evolution of your mm -hmm. book, because I discern in a, some relationship to your crime writing, I see that there's a definite structure and a mystery here. Did you do that deliberately? No. Uh, other people have written, you know, most of the people who've written about the book have said it, it's like a page turner. But and it, it, is a it is a mystery. There is a little mystery in it, but to me that's small in the book. Do you want to say what the mystery is? Well, just the, it, it was questionable how my wife died, and so that is a mystery in, in, the, in the book. I don't think it's small, though. I think it's a little engine that drives, yeah. that drives the book. And it's constructed like a mystery because you're a crime writer, I think either deliberately or intuitively that you structured it that way. 
and I'm, we're not going to tell you how it ends, but it does have the satisfactory aesthetics of crime fiction because you do find out. Yeah, yeah somebody, you know, I was at, at this uh, um, um, festival and a book festival, and a woman in the audience, it was before the book came out, said, I, I just read the advanced copy of your memoir, and it it's, reads like a crime thriller. It was really exciting, and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it must be part of my DNA, and I do, I honestly believe in some way that, you know, I did structure the book, and I, I remember feeling so odd about structuring a, a book of this personal nature, you know, like I had these overflowing notebooks, and but that's not a book, you know, a work of art is not that, you know, so I had to start cutting things and editing. I'm, I remember so many times sitting there and thinking, how can I be thinking about the structure of a sentence when I'm writing about the loss of my wife? And then I realized, you know, if I'm going to do this book, I know my wife would say, this better be your best book. <laughs> you know, and, and I believe I did. I wanted it, you know, so I did work on the structure. I, I moved things around. I moved chapters around. And I still think the book is, has a, a diaristic quality, but not mm -hmm. like yours, mm -hmm. because yours has actual notations and time and emails. Um, and I did have things like that in my notebooks. And I, I took them out because I wanted the book. I, I wasn't sure how it would read ultimately, but. So the trajectory is three, is it three years? In the um, well, it'll be six years this, the end of this month that my wife passed away. And I started actually writing the book at two years. I mean, when I say that, I was transcribing my uh, notes and I was in Assisi and uh, the director is sitting right here. And also, I mentioned SJ looked at those pages and I showed them to a group. I was mortified, you know, to show them to a group of, she had a writing group. But they were, it was interesting because they gave me feedback as if it was just a regular book, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, what are you talking about? You know, so that was sort of helpful because it gave me distance. And I think it's so interesting when you're working on something that's so painful and so powerful to you. To how do you get that distance? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that you know we we I think I don't know how you felt. I grappled with the idea. I even talk about it in the book. Like, how dare I be writing about this? Is this right? Is this fair? Is this correct? You know. But you know, I. This is what artists do. You know, they take their pain and their happiness and their everything, and they put it into some form. Well, it's a commemoration of the person whom you have lost. Mm. So the person comes alive again, and there's a presence of joy in, in the memoir. There's a, a palpable presence. But also your daughter, Doria. So I would say that you are so lucky to have a, a beloved daughter, even though both of you are stricken with grief. And she's a presence, too. But you really respect your daughter's uh, the privacy, let's say, of, of her grief, because there's just something about the way you present her. There's a lot of dialogue. Some of the dialogue is fantastically funny. But there's a, there's a lot of dialogue, so you let people speak in their own voices. But you don't presume to analyze her. So I assume that was all very you know, I, deliberate. I didn't, 
honestly think about that until much later. But then I became aware of the fact that I had, that this was something I was doing. I did not, though Dory, my daughter and I shared this experience and this terrible grief and tragedy, I could not presume to know what her loss was and what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And so I never, in fact, there's one moment in the book where I think I say, it dawns on me that I lost a wife and she lost a mother. And those are very, very different things. And, I, and so I did not ever try to speak for her. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a beautiful passages where your daughter calls you on the phone and asks questions of you. And, and it dawns on you that, that she really wants to talk to her mother. Mm. Do, you remember, do you remember that? Because there was very much a, now, a, a fiction sort of dramatic No, I, I, I do remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think there was a part of me early on that felt as if, and it was unconscious, but that felt as if I suddenly had to be mother and father, and which was absurd, you know. I'm not even that great as a father, so how can I? <laughs> oh, I'm know, sure you are. I, I, but I mean, I just, there was no way to take that on. But I think... Yeah, I, I, I was, I know the little, it's a small passage in the book, but I remember, I, you know, there were probably more in my notes, but I remember this moment thinking, I think pretty sure my daughter means this question for Joy. How would Joy answer it, you know? So I've given that up, though. I, you know. <laughs> but I thought that was a, one of the many moments in the memoir that have this sort of, immediacy and drama of fiction where the author, who's, who's Jonathan, is discovering it at the moment on the page. You know, it's sort of the revelation is not just being, he's not just saying it, it's sort of like a discovery that the reader makes along with, with the author. What? But I think you were unusually close with your daughter anyway, weren't you? Com yeah, I love compared her. To I many. love her to bits, yeah. But since you're an artist, you were probably around the house. Well, you more. know, we had one of, you know, my wife went to work. She had a real job. And, you know, I was an artist. And um, so for my daughter's early years, she was very often in a playpen in my studio. That's so great. And I would be painting, and there'd be loud music. I, 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 she should have her hearing checked. But, <laughs> you know, and she would sometimes cry, and I would just pick her up, and we would dance around the room so until wonderful. she fell asleep and then I put her back and but so we I think we did have this connect physical sort of yeah. but you know what you're saying about in the moment because your book to me is so much in the moment but I realized that when I even when I transcribed things they became new to me I discovered mm -hmm. something new yeah. that I didn't think I you know remembered or knew or when you write things down you think oh Yes, it is a constant surprise. Well, Freud talks about mourning and melancholia and how mourning is very natural and normal. And one inevitably does mourn. But melancholia is a more protracted and I guess one would say neurotic state, sort of like paralysis where you're not exactly mourning or you're not doing the work of mourning, whatever that might be. You're sort of stuck in this extreme depression. So I think that for most people, there must be some 
balance between the two. You, you start off in the state of being stunned. And basically, there's this element of surprise, which I can't really exaggerate, and I'm sure you felt the same way. It's just sort of everything is kind of unreal. And, and you keep thinking, well, this isn't, this is not really happening, is it? You know, it's sort of like you're detached from your own self. And then later on, I don't know how long it would be, some actual emotions start start coming. Yeah. I, I think at one point, you know, I I, I reread your book and I reread parts of my book over the last few days. So I might be talking about Joyce's book, but <laughs> I I think I did the same. I you know, I, I there I think I talk about I think it's in my book, but that things feel like, think you feel like you're in a dream. I felt like I was in a dream, a bad dream so often. And then, and then I write about how like I would touch the wall and the things, but then I think, well, isn't that what you would do in a dream to test that you weren't dreaming? You know, so how do I know that this isn't still part of the dream? I also wanted to say something about men and grief and what yeah, you said earlier. Yeah. I just, Le recently, just very recently, I started reading more about men, you know, assigned roles of men in grief and women in grief. And um, I, I was upstate visiting with my friend Susan Kreil, and she said, well, why not look at the Greeks? And I went down a rabbit hole of research, you know. And in fact, you know, there's this, you know, the whole legacy of Greek tragedy and how women are assigned all the grief, and that grief is very destructive mm. all the times. But men are, are always on the sidelines of grief. Mm. You know, mm. um, I think, I think really, you know, one of the things this book, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's cathartic because it was horrible to write, but um, you do, it does somehow, some, you release something as you're writing it. And then you can't stop, you know. So, but I and I don't think men. I know that I certainly was, and I don't, men are not really brought up to deal with their emotions or their emotional life. I think they're given a very narrow bandwidth of emotion, and um, I don't think mine was all that wide, you know. Um, so well, you you are probably conditioned to be stoic. Yeah. If, if anything. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, I was. And I, I think that, um, sorry, oh goodness. Uh, let's see about this technical, is that all right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, well, my mother's very stoic, which is interesting. And cheerful. Very cheerful, wildly cheerful. <laughs> no, she's wonderful. She's an amaz amazing I, mother. Amazing. Yeah, Joyce she's has met my mother. She's you know, my mother's yeah, she's over 90. You would think she was 30 years younger. She's a pistol, and she's always cheerful. It's like, you, you know, sometimes you'd like to. Anyway, <laughs> I love her. But my father was incredibly stoic and impenetrable. In, you know, so maybe that's why my mother had to be so cheerful. But, um, you know, it was an odd. My sister's not here, and I think it's a shame, because I would make her come up here, and we could talk the yin and the yin and the yang it would be like a horrible therapy session but you know you know the, the the living in a house where you have parents one who's very dark 
and really you can't get to in any way, and then one who's just like happy all the time. That is you amazing. Know, it's kind of, I mean, I'll choose the happy, but <laughs> it, it, I think, I don't think I was at all, and I think my sister was, is a hundred times more emotional than I am, and was allowed to be, and I was not. Yeah. I was not. Well, didn't you say that your father was actually ill, and he didn't want to tell anyone? Well, my father had a major heart attack at 40, and almost died, and he started preparing me for his death. Mm -hmm. You know, I was 12. Oh. And uh, I That's said this at my father's funeral, because my father, from the time I was a little boy, was preparing me for his death. That's mm -hmm. fun, right? And, you know, he would say things to me like, John, I don't want you to make this a big deal when I die. Oh. <laughs> you know. That's really, you were too young. So I, too young to hear that. Yeah, well I heard it from the time I was 12 until he died, and he did die fairly young, but, and, and he said to me, you are to, and my mother reinforced it, you are to give my eulogy. He said, I want you to give my eulogy, oh. and I don't want you to make it a big deal. Mm. And so I'll tell you, I mean, it's in the book. I had to do it because I did, I, I, my sister and I, we stayed up the whole night writing a very serious eulogy. And then in the morning, my sister said, why don't, why don't, don't do this, just, just, just talk. And so I got up in front of this large crowd and I said, my father's been rehearsing me for his death for about 30 something years or more. And he told me not to make it a big deal, so we have his body out back in a hefty bag. <laughs> and. <laughs> I lived, did say that, and my mother almost fell out of her chair. I mean, I mean, but she liked it. She liked it. Um, and you know, I, I will say this though, you know, um, because now people are laughing, and that's good. But you know, I believed, and I didn't know that there were funny things in my book. You were one of the first people, because you were one of the first people to read it, who said there were funny things. But I think that that humor helps uh, get us through the worst things, you know? I was, Sarah Silverman, I just saw her say this thing where she said, something, I'm gonna ruin it, but she's not here. So, <laughs> but she said something like, you know, comics have to look at the worst things because if you don't shine a light on the bad stuff and the fear, it's really scary. And so I think humor keeps us human and, as much as I, I was devastated, I mean, I would, if, I would not be talking the way I'm talking tonight if you had met me two or three years ago, but um, I think you are changed from these experiences, right, Joyce, you are, but you know, if, if you were at all funny, or if you were this, you're still that person, and that still is in the voice of one's book, I think, right, you know, so. Well, know. you also become a comic ingenue because people are giving the widower all this advice. Mm. And he's kind of sitting there taking all, listening to this incredible, this incredible advice. And that's where much of the humor is generated by mm. that. Are you going to read that section or not? Oh, no. Oh, no? Oh, OK, <laughs> sorry. No, I, I, no, that's too funny, I guess. Well, I, I just, you if know. If I could find it, I'd read some of it. You can read anything you'd like from it. Um, I think. Um, well, people are always asking the widower, widower 
to go out from the dinner or to take him out. And then they're given this advice. He has not asked for any advice. You know, no. It's completely unsolicited. What you need. But don't people don't they they told you that, right? You have a whole chapter about people oh, being crude and telling things, you what to do yeah. with the rest of your life and people say odd things. They but the people who told me these things were not really friends or close friends. They were more like just people I ran into. Whereas in your case, they were actual, or they had been. I don't know what they are anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering what the husband and wife are sort of arguing of whether Jonathan should oh. go out with all these women, go with all these women, have a good time. I mean, it's so well, what bizarre. Then they get fighting with each other while Jonathan's just sort of sitting there. And that was actually one of the very few moments during the first year after the loss of my wife that I found humor in anything, which was that these friends who took me out to dinner were trying to fix me up with this woman. And and I said, well, you know, I'm not ready. And the wife said, oh, please, you know, you'll be with 800 women in a minute. And, it, and what happened is then the husband got in with it. Yeah, he should go out and have a good time. And then the wife was like, oh, that's what you want to do, right? And they, <laughs> they, they had this huge fight in front of me, you know? And it was quite, and I recorded in here. Um, <laughs> Because it was so it was so human and funny to me, you know that that this is, but there is something, and I I think there's something in when you are let suddenly single and you're you're treated differently, you know. Women I think are treated in a totally different way than men are, and I think in a we could say a worse. A, 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 a more discarded way, but men are treated in this odd, odd way, you know, like, it took me this long to become the most eligible man in New York. Um, <laughs> it's so bizarre, you it's, know. It's like you become the repository of others' fantasies, and well, all these men are saying, oh, what you need is all these women. The, another very funny scene, maybe you don't even want to talk about it, but if there's a movie made, it will be very funny. This person, <laughs> who's actually maybe a little younger than you are, he takes out his laptop and starts showing you all these women on this website. And other people in the, in the restaurant are kind of looking at this and it's very embarrassing. <laughs> maybe you don't want to even talk about it. I think it's, it's so best funny. better to it's read it. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll um, just say that Joyce has said it perfectly. If you can imagine the scene that you're with your friend and your friend is showing you a hooker website and suddenly you're you're sitting in the middle table of a restaurant of like 70 people and there's a din that goes to instant quiet and everyone's like this you know and it just um yeah i'll tell you it was distracting well <laughs> i don't want to give you any more suggestions or instructions in, in your writing because you have your own projects but you have you have two scenes, at least, of a, of a play. Uh, that scene, then the one before that with the couple, then there's a scene with a woman. I won't, probably, she might be in the room, so we won't go No, uh-uh. And then there's a scene with a young woman. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, then we have like four scenes of a play right there. <laughs> I mean, you've already written them because the, one, the wonderful thing about these scenes is that they're not sketching. They actually go on, they go on so long that they become really luridly funny. It's so, oh, he's still showing this laptop. It just, it doesn't end immediately. You know, it's like a real scene in a play where the audience will be squirming and uncomfortable and be laughing, you know, so you've kind of fleshed it out. Well. So um, you, didn't know, you didn't know you were a playwright. Oh, no, no, no. I would not write a play. I, I, uh, my students are like that too. I say, this is a one act play you've written. It's, it's wonderful. They say, it is? I said, yes, you've, <laughs> you've actually written a one act play. Just stay, change the format. Well, you know, I think, um, I think I wrote some of those scenes, particularly the last scene that you're talking about with this woman, because I, I felt like I had even though I, I disguise people, and I don't, I don't really want to hurt anyone. I mean, I kind of forgive everybody, and I do, you know. I mean, and let me, and anyone who's lost someone knows that, because we're all terrible at it, you know, we're all terrible. And so people really, you know, some people disappear, some people are really wonderful, but anyhow, I didn't want to let myself off the hook either. So I wrote about sort of my own kind of insanity and things that I did, not all of them, but some of them. And I, I did, you know, when you say though that they're play scenes, I remember looking in my notebooks and seeing, you know, I'd have like this scrawl for like six pages and, and I would sometimes just literally copy them out. Well, the know. dialogue's wonderful. You wouldn't have to change the dialogue. No, I didn't have to change the dialogue. I never changed the dialogue. I mean, if you make it into a play. And the, oh. way, and the way they start, and also it's, it's just naturally comic because you're ostensibly the subject, but then they ignore you and they're just fighting with one another. And that scene plays out that way. Yeah, I hope I, uh, yeah, it, it's, I guess in a way I wouldn't, you know, I don't think of it as play. When those scenes, when I, I think when my editor read them, she said they read in a very novelistic way and that she liked that about them. And I, I, I thought that was interesting because I had not really designed them. I had cut them down, you know, I'd edited them or something, but I had not re rewritten them particularly, you know? So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, we you know, I guess one of the weird things is when I started the book, and you said this before, it's a tribute to my wife, Joy, who is an extraordinary person and was my sort of compass and kept me real and many things. But I realized at a certain point, well, you're writing about yourself. You're writing about how you reacted, how you feel, you know? And, and so there's this awareness suddenly that what you're making here is not quite what you thought, or I don't know, maybe that's not what I'm... Well, since Joy had her own profession, and she yeah. was working on her own book, so she is an independent oh, yeah. subject. I mean, she wasn't just your wife, I mean, she was her own. No. And you work on that project sort of helping her <coughs> bring it. Well, I'll tell you, 
Do you uh, want to talk about her book a little? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, my wife, well, Joy, uh, we met in art school and we, we were married for over 40 years. So we met really young. And, um, you know, I'm not, and I say this, I mean, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, but we weathered a lot of stuff. And uh, we, I think Joy was very smart with me because as she once said to a friend of ours who was trying to tell me to do something, she said, he's not trainable. <laughs> and uh, and I, th I think she got that. And we had a lot of independence in our marriage, though we were also very physically close. I mean, Joy was a food historian, and so our, our workrooms abutted one another, you know. And so we saw each other continuously, and we were very, very, we were very close, but we also had a lot of independence. Um, Joy was also, and you may have noticed I'm not, but Joy was very quiet. Um, there's a passage in the book that I write about where we drive across the desert in the Southwest for two days, and I think Joy said two words. I talked <laughs> continuously, and at one point I said to Joy, am I annoying you? And she said, well, am I supposed to listen? <laughs> so she said, it's like the radio. Like the radio. radio. Yeah. So it, bec it became a joke in our house that she would say to me, is this radio talk, or do you really want me to listen? And I'd say, no, this is, yeah, I'm talking. So, you know, I think, but you know, I think artist couples, and you and Ray had this, you know, is you know how to give each other a certain kind of space, even though you're very close. Well, and one thing we should probably make clear, because we're gonna have time actually, is that both Jonathan and I, and perhaps it's just accidental, we had a lot to do, we had a lot of work to do. So yeah. you couldn't just curl up in bed, you know, and put the blinds down. I had to bring out the, ish, the last issue of our magazine, Ray was the editor, it was almost finished and had to go to press. I had to do all that. Then I had to pay and make out checks for the contributors. Then I was also teaching. Then I had some uh, lectures and readings at university. So I was really in motion. I couldn't really stop. You also were teaching. Mm -hmm. That's one of the really nice chapters. Uh, I think I, maybe it's called Teach in the Classroom. I, in the, yeah, I think so. I, yeah. And that was Joy's project. So I was working with Ray's things and you were working with Joy's things. Yeah, it's true because, yeah, yeah you were left with the, the issue of the magazine that yeah. Ray was the editor of and, I, and that's in your, and, and you talk about that. A lot of work, like late at night and I'm sure you were doing the same thing. Well, Joy was working on a, um, a big book called Food City, which had, was published posthumously. It was actually a James Beard finalist. It's an amazing, amazing book. And she had been working on it for years, and when she died, she the manuscript was finished, but it was 400,000 words, and the contract was 150,000 oh. words. Oh. So she would have cut it. Um, I, the editor asked me to try, mm -hmm. and I, I tried for a couple of weeks, and I was in such bad shape, mm. and, and yeah. I, there was just no way, there was no way. So we actually went through a few editors, before we got this amazing man, um, Jack Beatty, if anybody ever needs an editor. He was at um, Harper's and 
Viatic, and he was just this extraordinary man who took 400,000 words and, and figured out how to do it. You know, I, I basically want him to move in and just do all my books somehow. <laughs> but, you know, the, it's, a, yeah. Well, it sounds like there's another book there. Or there is. There is another chapters. book. I mean, the sad, of course, thing that, you know, I mean, there was a big book party for Joy's book, and it was way up there with one of the saddest nights of my life. <clears throat> you know, I mean. Well, everything's ironic because of your, your memoir has got these glowing reviews and it's sort of just ironic because you can't share them with, with your wife. It's, yeah. like, it's like Tim O'Brien's wonderful career. He's written about uh, you know, the things they carried having been in Vietnam. And Tim O'Brien, I think, is, a, is a, very, a, a wonderful writer and my students all admire him, his work so much. But then I say to him, but would you have wanted to have the experience so that then you could do that writing? And they all kind of, they don't really want that. Right. Or would you like to be Kafka or someone like that? Mm. So the irony is not lost upon you all the time. No. You know, the, the book is something that you created out of this disaster and catastrophe that was so premature and, uh, and not inevitable. I mean, it was sort of arbitrary. And the same with, with my husband, he was also medical malpractice, though I didn't have an autopsy. I was so exhausted, I couldn't even think about it. But both examples of medical malpractice, and you talk a little bit about that. Oh, that, I guess we don't have time. That is so frustrating, the way that the hospital and the doctor eluded you for like two years mm -hmm. and didn't tell the truth and kept hiding it. And you had to, you had to hire lawyers to help you. Yeah. That's like a nightmare. That, yeah. That's part of the suspense of this. Yeah. Of this. I, I, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't talk about it except to say uh, it was horrible. That's all I can say. You know, it was just horrible. Um, and one of the things that makes that kind of thing most horrible is so you kind of reached a certain point where I'm not saying you're over your grief because I believe you're changed but you're starting to feel better and then these other things come out mm -hmm. that you have to suddenly relive and and you know I remember going back to the hospital to demand the autopsy which they would not ever release. They said there wasn't They one. said they what well they said they lost it, then they said it was never done. There were all these things. In any I case, so there I am in shocking. the place in the hospital where my wife, you know, where she died, and there I am trying to do this. So it that's that was really awful. But um, that's what happens. You find yourself doing things that are so farcical and like something in an absurd play. You think, why, why? You think grief should be elevated as in King Lear. It should be really very, <laughs> very noble. But it, it's, it's not. It's sort of like the Marx Brothers or something. Well, you know, it, 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 it is in some ways when I, I was reading some of, um, in, in your book, uh, I'm sorry to bring this up again, but you talk about the cats peeing on these legal papers, and I just started laughing. <laughs> You know, but I mean, because these ridiculous things happen, and, and I remember going to 
the funeral home, and you know, it just looked like something out of the Adams family. And I just thought, are they kidding? You know, like, I mean, I, all I could think of was, I can't wait to get home and discuss this with Joy. She'll just fall out, you know, it's so absurd. And of course, those are the things one, you know, I think if you're in a relationship, what, what do you, you know, yes, there are big things, but what you miss are the little things, you know, you miss the things that aren't very important that you talk about at the end of the day or something, or isn't that person a, you know, I mean, I'm a huge movie buff, as you know, and Joy was even possibly more. And, you know, often she would, Joy would like to go to the movies like three nights a week. And I would be like, no, no, no. She'd say, you just have to sit there. But, um, <laughs> and so I would often go, but you know, I couldn't go to the movies for almost two years because first of all, if you go to a bad movie, who are you gonna complain to about it? Do you know what I mean? If they haven't sat there or, and so it's sort of not, it made it, it took me a long time for those things that were little, the little things that are fun, you know, to make them fun again. Um, it's a very visceral thing too, it's not almost like a sense of horror, a sense of horror like a certain room or a certain chair or, or a sofa where somebody sat and this feeling of cold horror that, that there's nobody there, mm. that there's, the person's nowhere in the world. We don't have time, I think we <laughs> probably have to move on, but I think there's a whole category of inept advice people give mm. to you that's very funny. So I think we're getting a signal from that gentleman oh, okay. over there. Okay, good. So we good. are we going to open it up to the you audience. You can ask questions. Yes. So we'll move back. Joyce will do that. Uh, we have a woman here, and maybe is somebody going to bring a, a microphone or not? Or you? Okay, speak. <laughs> I think that's very, very common. I mean, I think it's just something that's intuitive and that we can't not do, don't you I, feel? I would say also, um, your, what you describe is very traumatic, that losing your husband you know, in this way, even though he was sick for a long time and you didn't know it, I lost my wife suddenly. She essentially died in my arms in 10 minutes. And I relived that for at least two years. And, and you know, every time an ambulance went by my window or, you know, shine, a red light shined, you know, I would relive it. And I think it's a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder that, that, and I think it's very common with many, many people who suffer loss. And I think it, you know, it, does it get better? Yes. I mean, I think 
Yes, and I think, I hope, if anything, in writing a book like this, and Joyce's book too, is that you, know, you feel maybe, you feel less alone. The only, after I could read again, all I read were grief memoirs, and they were, they were comforting to me. Not, not like stages of grief books, because not that I think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I mean, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I'm sure she was great, but it's like she made me feel like I was doing grief wrong. Um, I mean that, but you know, reading Joyce's book or reading Joan Didion's book or reading, you know, those books, they could speak to me because you feel, I just didn't, you know, I know you must have done a million interviews and, and I spoke to this woman and, and it was really interesting and she said, you know, I feel like I'm more comfortable with my tribe. And I thought, wow, I never thought about that. But you know, people, but we all experience it in one way or another, you yeah. know, so. Well, after, after my, my book came out, your, your book is just coming out now, well, it happened to you too. You get a lot of letters, people saying that it happened just like that and uncanny coincidences. And I got wonderful letters, that not just from, from women, but from men also, and from people who had lost like a, a child and that, is sort of unfathomable, but the experiences are so similar. I think there's a real paralysis and you're just sort of locked into a sense of unreality. When I saw Joan Didion, it had been several years since her husband had died and Ray had died maybe a couple of years. And Joan and I are not really friends, I mean, I don't know that well, she's a wonderful person. We sort of clutched our hands and we both said how unreal everything is. Yeah. That was the one word that we, we just sort of said together. It's so, unre <coughs> it's so unreal. Well, I think in, it, it's, I read The Year of Magical Thinking when it came out in the 80s, and I, I love Joan Didion as a writer. I think she's brilliant. And I liked the book, but when I read it after, my, again, when my wife died, I read it in a whole different way. And you know, she's described herself because one of the social workers in the hospital calls her a cool customer. And so she refers to herself as a cool customer through the whole book. And I thought, that's interesting because I tried to present myself mm -hmm. as a cool customer, yeah. you know? So I could relate to her book in that way. And so I think we find things in other people's stories. I mean, we're all in the process of storytelling of our lives and people around us. There's a question back here. Well, it's a very good question. Well, when you're writing a, a novel, you're not really leaving anything out because there's nothing there. You're sort of making it all up. But with a memoir or nonfiction, there's a lot of material, and you have to select it. So I was actually going to ask Jonathan if 
you know, if you left lots of things out. Yes, I, I did. Um, of course, because, you know, it would have been a thousand pages. I mean, seriously. But um, so you make choices. You know, I, I, what you said, I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, um, I, I was at a, a, I didn't know why I was invited, which was interesting to begin with, but that's because I didn't read the invitation. But so I was invited to the New York Public Library this luncheon, and I thought, I went, why are they inviting me, you know? But it turned out to be about memoir. So I was at a table with all memoirists, mm. and, and so, you know, the topic was just exactly what you ask. Where is art, and where is, you know, when you're making something from truth? And I think, you know, when you're writing nonfiction, as Joyce just says, you are not making it up, but you are make, still making choices, because you still have to figure out what the storyline how that's, well, I don't know. I was gonna say how it's gonna work for other people. I never thought about other people when I wrote it, you know? You're still thinking about it for yourself. And it's such emotionally loaded material that, uh, I mean, I would say I left, <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, you think of the craziest things. So I was just thinking about this friend of mine, Elizabeth Frank, whose father was M Mel Frank, the, the um, uh, producer, thank you. Yes, oh, right. You, of course, you're a movie guy. So Mel Frank did on-the-road movies and all this, and he, I forget who his writing partner was, but he and his writing partner would say, let's leave out, like Elmore Leonard said, let's leave out the boring parts. <laughs> so I would, I would, when I looked at my notebooks, I would just look at them and, you know, I'd read them, and, and you know, some of it was just, you know, ver you know yes, it had, meaning to me, but I didn't think it would have meaning to anybody else. And there were choices, there's always choices of things that, that you um, keep in. And I think I would write a different book today than I did, you know, then. When you said Joyce was talking about, you know, the sort of, you have, Joyce has a chapter called something like um, crude, what's it called? Cruel. Cruel, crude, and well-intentioned. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's what people say to you. And mine is less, of course, less eloquent. It's called Stupid Things Said by Smart People. <laughs> and, um, but I think I probably would take that out now because I feel like I was just too raw at the time. And you know, anything people said to me, just I was just, I was just an open wound, you know, so people would say things they didn't mean to be bad, you know, it just, and I would go, I would just like, inside I would just, you know, I kept my smile on, but inside I would just disintegrate. And I would write it at night, you know, and then it ended up in the book. And I, I sort of feel bad about that. You know, but some, so. of the, some of those are really interesting, though. And the things that people say, like what, the oddest thing that somebody said to me, it's actually sort of a friend at Princeton, she said, well, grief is neurological. It's in the brain. And you will get better when you, your neurons realign themselves or something. <laughs> so you could start doing that now. It was something like that. It was sort of a logical, it's something that a, a, a robot might tell you. <laughs> and so I don't say anything about it. I just put it in the book. If yeah. I, so, but I'm not really saying anything else about it. Then this other person, this sort of ha handyman who was doing things, he said, oh, it's like, oh, you're in this situation where you're making a new start. 
and he's smiling and all that. And I was so tired, I said, well, it's not really the same thing. He says, like, if you're getting a divorce or beginning all over <laughs> right. again, you could sell your house, you can do this, you can travel. And I said, well, I'm a little tired, I really can't do this. <laughs> it's, it's just so, that people all project themselves into it. Like, obviously, he wanted this. And that's another thing people will say to women, maybe to men too, but they say, oh, you'll be selling your house now. They say things like that. And you actually sold your house. <laughs> Well, well, you should not have sold, you shouldn't. So he did what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to do anything for a year, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, people tell men things, a lot of things, you know, um, um, but I think you're right. People project, I think people don't mean to, the people mean well, you know, they're telling you things that they would do, but it becomes ridiculous in your head, you know. Yes, I did sell my house and I do regret it, but, and despite the fact that everybody told me not to do it, I did it. So well, there I remember you go. that Joy had planted, I think, tulips. And so Everything, yeah. So when they came off, and Ray had planted tulips too. And one time I came home, and all the tulips had been eaten. <laughs> and the, like each one of them by the de deer had come in and eaten them. And it was just sort of like a stab in the heart. I just sort of stood. I just thought this is so symbolic, or this is the world, or something, that the deer came in and ate this. Then I thought, well, Ray won't know about it. You know, mm. everything is just sort of magical thinking or primitive thinking. It takes a while to realize the person's not coming back. Oh, yeah. In the beginning, you think the person is like over here watching and listening. And so you're sort of talking to that person. And you, so this person sees you doing the good things that, you know. But then after a while, you sort of realize that the person's not actually there. It takes, takes a while. Well, yeah. I would say the first year you're in shock, and that's kind of horrible but good because you're not letting things in and then in the second year you're kind of like this is becoming real it's real and then in the third year you're like you know this is kind of it in a way this is your life but I was thinking about a funny thing I'll maybe we're almost out of time but just to say uh so I sold this house and I and it's a, it was a charming 1840s farmhouse upstate that, that Joy and I got together and we loved and you were there many times. And it was a really sweet, funky old house and, and Joy was a great gardener and she did all this stuff. Anyhow, so we got this realtor and she brought a zillion people. And then this couple shows up, you know, we practically have signed the papers with these other people. And this young couple, not young, but sort of young, yeah, young, like 40s. And they have this like nine-year-old, eight-year-old daughter uh, which is about, you know, like I was thinking about, and they just reminded me of Joy and, and mm -hmm. myself and Dory. Mm -hmm. And so I sold them the house. Mm -hmm. And the realtor was like, what? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, like, and they got in touch with me to tell me that all the peonies had come up and oh, all the tulips so were up and all the stuff. And so I felt like, yeah, you know, it was right that they drove up the thing and bought the house and I felt, fine about that in a way. Well, so. I, and I live right near my, my old house. I don't live in the same house now, but I drive by the house all the time, so I don't have that, I wouldn't have that shock of seeing it again. Whereas sometime in the future, you may see your house and all this, these memories will come back. Well, Are we yeah. ending now? Okay. So, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your well, time.